0: Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 133, and we're going to talk about why I'm quitting van life. Yeah, I'm not. It's just clickbait, and we're going to talk about that phenomenon, and also why people do actually quit. We'll also talk about a great and affordable step that you can put on your taller vans to help get in there, a tale from the road involving lava and total recall, and a place to visit that is actually where a witch used to live. Hello everyone, welcome back. You are listening to me for the first time, but I am listening to me for the second time because I just recorded this episode and it didn't work. So sometimes you have to start over and that's what I'm doing today. And that kind of relates to today's topic, which is why I'm quitting van life, which again, I am not doing. Everything is fine with my personal van life. Thank you for asking. But I see lots and lots of articles that say, is this the end of van life and why I quit van life? And oh, wait, quick tip here. If you see a YouTube video or a headline that ends in a question mark, such as, is this the end of van life? You can almost always answer that with a simple, no, no, it's not. It's clickbait. That's called Betteridge's Law, named after Ian Betteridge. And it's almost always true. So. When you see this stuff, which I see all the time, you know that the person is really just trying to get clicks and then they'll give you something that may or may not actually have to do with that topic, but you should still watch some of them because people do quit van life and it is helpful to know why so that in your van life, you can avoid those things or maybe accept those as valid reasons. Now this segment here, I'm gearing it towards mostly dreamers, people who don't have a van but would like to someday, and I'm hoping the message you get from this is that you do need to do research and watch these videos and read these articles so that you don't have the things that happen to them happen to you. For example, one very common thing I see is that people try out van life and It just wasn't comfortable for them, and I mean that literally and emotionally. Literally, van life isn't as comfortable as living in a house of some sort. It's just not. You have fewer ways to make yourself comfortable. It's harder to control temperature, your bed may not be comfortable because you have to fold it up and take it apart, you're always worried about water and power and things like that, and some people just can't ever make the jump over to being comfortable in that environment. I have always said since day one, the number one predictor of success in van life is how much you like camping. If you've spent a week in a tent living on the side of a mountain somewhere or next to a beach or whatever and you liked it, you have fond memories of that experience, van life will probably work out pretty well for you. But if you had that time where you went camping that weekend and you couldn't sleep all night because you were afraid there were bugs in your sleeping bag and you were swatting all the time, you were super uncomfortable, uh, van life's gonna be more of a challenge for you. And I'm, I'm not going to dissuade anybody from doing van life who wants to try it, But just know what you're getting into, which is kind of the theme of this whole segment. There are also folks who just can't get comfortable with the uncertainty of van life. They don't like that they're not anchored to a place. They don't like that they constantly have to worry about resources or that they might be afraid of security. And that's kind of a false fear because arguably you're safer in a van than in a house. But I've talked about that enough, so we'll skip that for now. Yes, van life may not actually fit your demeanor once you give it a shot, and that's why you should do it in small starts. Take a short trip close to home, see how it is, make adjustments, and always do this a few times before you actually head out and do van life full time. The second one I've noticed a lot is that a relationship ended. If you're starting van life with a partner of some sort, make sure you know that partnerships end especially if you're a young person and you're new to this relationship thing yeah well guess what folks relationships end no matter how you feel about someone now that may change down the road and when that does who's going to get the van are you going to give it to one person or the other or are both of you somehow going to buy a van and have two vans or are you going to sell it something of those three has to happen Uh, And it does. And when it does, usually one person continues on in van life and the other one leaves van life. It's okay. It's stuff that happens in life. And as I've said, van life is just a form of life. But have a plan for what will happen if your relationship doesn't continue. That will give you a whole lot of security and a whole lot less panic if that actually does come to pass. The third one I have on my list is, well, money, of course. People hit the road with an unrealistic expectation of how much van life costs and they run out of money and then they have to go somewhere, usually to back home to parents is often what it is or move in with friends or something like that. So, yeah, look, van life isn't free. Van life isn't even inexpensive, necessarily. No, you don't pay rent, and you don't pay electric and all that, but you do have to pay for a whole lot of vehicle maintenance that you probably aren't used to. You have to pay for sudden things that you didn't expect, like maybe campground fees, or, oh, maybe you need to stay in a hotel for a week because your van broke down, or maybe you have an insurance bill that you didn't consider that you were going to have because you no longer live with your parents or whatever. So make sure you understand that van life can easily cost you 1500 to $2,000 a month. Those are the numbers I see most often from most of the full-time van life folks. And those are folks who are working to keep their bills down. If you think you're going to get by on $200 a month, you're probably not, especially if you actually drive somewhere. Have a money plan. And that goes for making money too. Have a steady job or at least a steady source of income before you commit to van life. The idea of hitting the road and filming YouTube videos and that's going to fund your. Yeah, no, that is not how that works. If you want to make money on YouTube, it's going to take you probably two years to actually make some real money. Fourth thing I have on the list is, well, People just got tired of it. They'd driven everywhere they wanted to drive, and they were ready to be done. You know, it, nothing really bad happened, but they'd done, done van life for a year, and uh, yeah, it just didn't appeal anymore. And that's okay. That I would consider a success. I mean, when you get tired of playing a video game, that's not a failure. You've just done it. You've done everything you wanted to, and now you're ready to move on. And for some people, that's how van life ends. And that's plenty fine. In fact, that might even be good. That might even be the best way for van life to end. So that can happen and you will make plans for that as it happens. You don't have to worry so much about that in the future, but I have to add it to my list here because it is one of the things. Number five is related to number two here, and that is there's a family change. Sometimes the partnership you enter into in van life grows, and well, then van life isn't suitable for the family. Maybe a kid or two comes along, or maybe you get more dogs than the van will hold, or maybe one of you got a job, and in order to advance your career, you need to be more anchored in one place. Whatever the situation is, this is an often-reported reason for people giving up van life. A lot of the famous YouTube couples ended up moving into a house, and that is totally fine. Again, there is no failure here unless you're not able to do what you want to do. And the last one is that I think you can actually graduate from van life. It's very likely that you're not going to spend the rest of your life living in a van. You're going to do van life for a while and then you're going to stop for whatever reason. That's fine. You have graduated. Maybe you used to play soccer and you don't anymore. Maybe you used to study jujitsu and then you got your black belt and you're like, okay, well, I'm kind of done with this now. That's all fine and good, but it is a way that van life can end. And yes, it's kind of related to the get tired of the life thing, but I kept it separate because getting tired of the life is kind of a passive thing where you're just like, nah, I'm done with this. I'm going to go do something else graduating with van life is looking back and seeing wow i did all these things i did exactly what i wanted to do and now i'm ready to do other things and they don't really involve living in a van so i'm going to sell the van have all these great memories and move on yeah all right it's kind of the same thing but it, but it is different and i'm all about your mindset when you approach van life and i really think Thinking of it as graduating is a better way of thinking of it than just got tired of it. So as with all things, when you enter van life have a plan for when it fails. <clears throat> it doesn't fail. Have a plan for when it ends, because you're going to get into trouble if it suddenly ends and you don't have a plan. Just having the plan, hopefully one that you'll never have to execute, is going to make your van life more successful. And it's going to relieve a lot of stress you might have, especially if you're new about, oh no, what happens if? Answer that before you go. Just have a general idea at the very least of what you're going to do if for some reason tomorrow you can't sleep in the van. For me, my van life is continuing on just fine. I am not a full-timer. I actually may move into my van full-time someday, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. I've got a whole bunch of stuff going on, but if I did decide to stop doing van life, I would think, oh, well, that was fun. Let's go do something else. Tech Talk. Let's talk about conduits. All right, so conduits, uh, if you're not familiar with conduits, they're basically pipes that you put wires in. That's all they are. They can be made out of metal or plastic. They can be rigid or flexible. There's a whole bunch of different ways that you'd want to do them. And in general, in cars, vans, trucks, you don't really have conduits. It's not something the manufacturers use. Uh, For a variety of reasons, but ultimately all those reasons boil down to, they cost more money. But for you, in your van, there are a few places that conduits might make sense. So in my van, I bought a new battery, and I'm thinking about mounting it in a different place than the old battery, and it's going to increase the run between my battery and where it's connecting to, which is something to avoid, but I think it's probably worth it in my use case. So to protect the wires for that run, I'm thinking about putting them in a conduit. Now, in my case, I think what I'll end up using is a piece of PVC pipe. And I will just run that pipe between my hookup for the batteries and the batteries themselves, put the cables in there, and then they're at least somewhat protected from vibrations and screws and things like that. And I don't have to worry about accidentally pinching them. But there's another reason to do this. And that is that with Conduit, it's pretty easy to send a fish tape down there and send a cable through to add a cable on. Like, let's say I wanted to add some kind of a battery monitor that had to be hooked up to the battery. Well, if I don't have the conduit in there, I've got these cables in the wall that are, you know, zip-tied to things and tied up in insulation, and it's really gonna be difficult to get the fish tape through all that. But with the conduit, it just goes right through, and then I can pull that line through. And that is a super useful thing if you're going to add on to your van. One place I definitely recommend people put conduit is in the ceiling in a place where you can run wires from the side of the van that has the batteries to the other side of the van. Because if you want to add an electrical outlet, like a 12-volt outlet or a light or something like that, you're going to need a way to get the wires over to the other side of the van. And the floor often isn't the best way to do that. So that leaves the ceiling or running it all the way around the van, which increases your cable length. And that's a bad thing too. So when you're designing your build, try to think ahead try to think of what you will want to do in the future and if conduit fits and i'm particularly fond of the blue flexible electric conduit if you're going to do thin wires or if you're going to do thicker wires like battery cables pvc or abs pipe works good try to put some of that in just to future proof your van and save yourself from having to rip out a whole bunch of stuff just because you want to run a map light over to the other side Tales from the road way back when I lived in Utah and I worked for a company called Native Plants Incorporated, I was charged with going to tend a field in St. George, Utah. Now, if you're not familiar with the anatomy of Utah, Salt Lake City is kind of in the corner at the top where the bite is taken out of Utah, that little kind of cornery part that is formed by the bite. That's kind of where Salt Lake City is. So it's in the northern part of the state. St. George is way down in the left-hand corner by Nevada. It's actually the first big city in Utah you hit when you're coming up from Vegas on I-15. And that's where our field was. We had a crop of experimental rape down there. Now, hold on—that's what the name of the plant is. I did not name it. Back then, we named we just called it rape, and now it tends to be called rapeseed or even rabi. But what this plant is is—it's is a broccoli. It's a—that's a cabbage. It's a brassica, a cruciferous vegetable. It's a plant that you grow for oil, and the oil it makes is called canola oil Uh, you may have heard of that that's right canola oil comes from a plant that is at least sometimes called rape Mm. (laughs) oh and why is it called rape because the etymology of the word somehow is related to brooms and it makes these shapes that are kind of like a broom and anyway way too much information about that but we had a field of it down there and i needed to go check it out basically so i was given the company truck And I drove all the way down to St. George. And this was a long time ago, before St. George was as built up as it is now. And the instructions, because there was no GPS or even MapQuest or anything like that, was to take this exit off of I-15, go through St. George, down these streets, and then, I kid you not, take a right at the lava field. Now, I didn't know how literal this was. I'd take a right at the lava field? Am I going to, like, Fred Flintstone Town or whatever? But sure enough, when I got down there, there was a lava field right there. At some point, lava had flowed here and dried on the surface, and there it was, and with nothing growing into it. And our field of rabi or Rapeseed, or whatever you want to call it, was growing right there next to it. So uh, that was an experience for somebody who had never seen that before and didn't realize there were places covered in lava in the United States that aren't in Hawaii. Well, yeah, Utah has that too. Anyway, I checked on the plants and they were doing fine. I was much more involved with the tomato program and didn't really care that much about these plants, to be honest. But, uh, you know, I went around and did a little bit of Santa Claus weed control. You know what that is, right? That's where you take an implement and you ho, ho, ho. Yeah, this is why this isn't a comedy podcast, but uh, it's true. I did go around and hoe all the plants and get rid of the weeds, took some pictures of it, and then headed up north. But that took a whole day, and it was time to stop for the night. I, I couldn't drive all the way to St. George, do all that work, and then drive back to Salt Lake in the same day. So I decided to stop in Beaver, Utah. Utah does have beavers. Uh, It is not one of the most common animals in Utah, but they named this place Beaver, and it is famous for being the home of Butch Cassidy. You may have heard of his exploits with the Sundance Kid. Apparently, he was from here, and there was a cave they hid out in the hills near there or whatever. But that's not the story. The story is what happened in Beaver when I spent a single night there and I I had three distinctly unusual experiences. The first was the hotel. I stayed in this hotel that was probably built in the 30s, maybe even the 20s. And it was made out of rock, or at least it was rock-faced, and there were these rooms that were separated by the openings that were enclosed. It almost looked like a regular row of motels covered in rock with every other one, having the front ripped off and just having a hole there. And it wasn't until after I left the hotel that I realized that those holes were where you were supposed to park your vehicle (laughs) but they were so small that the only thing that would fit in there was something like a model t which is what was available when this place was built so yeah probably in the 20s this was built now why there would be a hotel motel in beaver utah in the 20s i don't actually know because there's not a lot going on down there other than it's in between vegas and salt lake city and people drove that way back then i don't know but it was very strange i also remember that the room had this weird black and red shag carpet in it that the kind of carpet you didn't vacuum so much as raked yeah that was in there too so eh, it was fine i spent the night i slept that's what a room is for and they all kind of look the same with the lights out so eh, it's okay but i needed to get some dinner and there was a mexican restaurant in town so i went there but when i got to this mexican restaurant it it kind of looked like a house i mean it was just like a single story house with a sign on it that said Mexican restaurant. And I thought, oh, all right, so someone has converted a house into a Mexican restaurant or whatever, but when I went in the door, I was just in someone's house, and what they did apparently was every night they emptied all the furniture out of the living room and set up tables in there and there was like 3 or 4 tables and you would just like sit there and they would cook you food in their kitchen and bring it to you <laughs> and at first i was like i am i supposed to be here is this all right but after i got over that i kind of just went with it and you had an excellent <laughs> mexican meal home cooked. I mean, the freshest Mexican meal you could ever have right in this person's house. And I wish I could remember the name of the restaurant. And it's probably long gone. We're talking about the late 80s here. But still, that was kind of an interesting experience. And I know that people still do that kind of thing around the world. And well, if you ever have the chance to like do that, maybe take the chance. Uh, The worst thing that can happen is you won't like the meal and you can go somewhere else. But after that, I still had some time to kill, and I wasn't quite ready to go back to my shag carpeting at the hotel. And there was a movie theater in town, and it was actually running, and it had a movie I wanted to see, which was, to give you an idea of how long ago this was, Total Recall, the first one with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I wanted to see it. I'd never seen it before, and that was when I was going to see it. So I go to the movie theater, and, it, you know, it's an old one-screen movie theater, the kind I grew up with, and there's a candy stand there, and first thing I noticed that the person selling and taking the tickets is like an eight-year-old girl. I mean, really young. She did an excellent job, absolutely counted the change correctly, because this was back in the days when you could only pay for movies with cash, and I thought, oh, well, that's cute. Surely there's a parent around here watching over them, and maybe it's like, take your child to work day or something. Hmm i don't know but then i got a sense that maybe that was kind of normal because behind the counter at the concession stand were two boys one maybe 10 and one maybe 12. and they also were equally efficient and i got my popcorn and soda and then i went and watched the movie and the entire time i was at that theater i never saw an adult there may have been one there I don't know who was running the projector. I don't know if there was some back room where somebody was watching, but apparently this theater was owned by a family and the kids ran it. It worked. I don't know if there were child labor laws that were being broken, or if this was a family thing and they were exempt, I don't know, but I saw Total Recall, and I had a fine time, and well, this is the stuff I think about whenever I pass near Beaver, Utah, and the last time I was in Beaver, it was completely different, the theater was gone, I didn't find the hotel, and it was all built up with, like, bigger chain hotels, but... That's just one of the things that I have in my memory because I was willing to travel. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're one of those people too. And hey, keep collecting them. Product review. So my wife and I are, shall we say, of dissimilar heights. I am six foot and she's much closer to the five-foot region, although she'd probably say she's a little bit taller than that. We have the Sprinter. it's a Sprinter Ambulance, a Sprinter 2500. And, well, if you've ever tried to get in a Sprinter, they're very, very tall. You, you sit really high in a Sprinter van, I think higher than most other vans. I mean, when you're driving down the road, you're kind of eye-to-eye with all the tractor trailers, and that's kind of fun. But I honestly have to get into the thing by grabbing the steering wheel and pulling myself up into the cab and that works fine but for my wife on the passenger side she has a really hard time getting in there there's nothing to grab onto they didn't put a handle that you can grab onto and there's i don't have steps on the side of my van i I didn't until now I recently purchased a pair of CAR, C-A-R-R, custom fit side steps, and I put them on myself. They're called a hoop style step, and it it does look, it's just like a hoop. It's got a flat part like a step, but it's basically a bent pipe and you can put them in yourself in half an hour to an hour, and they're very inexpensive. It was a $100 for the pair. They're very professional-looking, and most importantly, very, very strong. I was able to stand on this thing and kind of hop up and down, and after it settled, because it did move a little bit at first, the thing is rock solid. So if you are in a situation where you need steps... I definitely recommend this product, and I'll have a link in the show notes. I got them from E-Trailer. Now, a few things about these, though. They do stick down low. So if you were going to do kind of rock crawling or whatever, I'd recommend you either... Undo a couple of bolts and fold them up higher so they're kind of locked up into the bottom of the van, or just remove them. They come off with just four bolts, so it wouldn't be that big of a deal if you're going to do an expedition. But if you're driving around town, you're not going to have any problems like that. The other thing is that installing them, while it isn't that difficult, does require some heft. On the sprinter at least and they do come with different instructions for the different vans you have to use a drill that's powerful enough to go through some pretty thick metal it's probably a quarter inch thick which is pretty thick it's it and it happens to be right where the jack mounts to lift up the front of the van And that took a while. I started doing it with a battery drill and then realized "Eh, that wasn't going to cut it, and I actually broke three drill bits doing this because I buy cheap drill bits. That's just one of my things. You basically only have to drill two of these holes and then a couple of easy holes, and that's it to install it. It has two screws at the top and two bolts at the bottom and then these tubes, and it's adjustable to any height you want. Anyway, for 50 bucks, my wife can now get in the van easily. It looks like it's part of the vehicle. It doesn't look tacky at all. It's made out of solid aluminum, so I don't think anything's going to happen to it. And the worst thing is that I could possibly rip it off. And another thing, I ended up not using both of them. I decided not to install the other one so I could have a spare just in case this one broke and what I might do is mount it by the slider so my wife has an easier time getting in and out of where the slider is that will be an even worse problem if we ever go off road and I will definitely need to be able to move that one but it's an option and I like having options so again that is the car c-a-r-r custom fit sidestep hoop 2 is what it's called and I'll have a link in the show notes it works and I think the price is very very reasonable A place to visit. So Salem, Massachusetts, has been coming up a lot lately. I don't know. I, I don't know why, but since I grew up there, I'm kind of tuned into hearing about it. And um, when you go to Salem, the city of Salem, it has been taken over by Halloween. Everything's Halloween now, and it wasn't that way when I was a kid. But when you go to th- places and want to see actual witch quote unquote stuff, uh, you probably end up at the Witch Museum, which has a shadow box show from the 50s that tells the story. But the truth is that Salem, as we know it today, the city of Salem, isn't actually where the people lived who were accused of witchcraft. I mean, a few were, but most of them lived in the farms around Salem, and all those places have different names now, like Peabody or Beverly or Beverly if you're from the area or Danvers which is Danvers if you're not from the area. And one of those places in Danvers, god it's hard for me to say that, is the Rebecca Nurse Homestead. Rebecca Nurse was an elderly woman who lived on her farm and was accused of witchcraft and was hanged there's a whole big story about how this happened and what happened to her body and all kinds of things like that but the homestead is still there and you can still visit it and it gives you a completely different perspective on this religious hysteria that came about in 1692 in the region I'm totally fine with folks going to Salem and doing all the Halloweeny stuff, but you have to take some time to step back and realize that this was a tragedy of monumental proportions where a society turned against itself and persecuted people who couldn't defend themselves, basically, for no reason other than greed and the avoidance of guilt. It's, it's a very complicated story that I will not tell you now, although I am thinking about planning a trip out there, an organized trip, so if you wanted to actually visit Salem with someone who grew up there and knows its history, that might be something I can help you with. But for right now, if you happen to be in the region, definitely check out the Rebecca Nurse Home. Another just a bonus add-on, if you're in that area, there is a tree there in Danvers that's called Endicott's Pear Tree, and it was supposedly planted by Governor Endicott in like 1650, And it's still there. And it's not a huge tree. It's just a pear tree. And it's in an industrial park, kind of in a field all by itself next to a parking lot. So you can Google that. It's Endicott's pear tree. But that's just kind of an interesting thing to see that actually gives you a connection because it's very possible that Rebecca Nurse saw and knew about that tree. And you can actually touch the same tree she touched. Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, check it out. Link in the show notes. Rebecca Nurse Homestead in Danvers, Massachusetts. Resource recommendation. All right, this isn't so much a resource recommendation, but I was just informed of this, and I thought I'd had to throw it in here. And, well, this is where it fits. Uh, My friend Brian Dunning of the Skeptoid Podcast, an excellent podcast that I recommend everybody listen to, pointed out that Rivian uh, is coming out with a motorhome, or as we might say, a camper van, and it looks kind of cool. Now, this is a future product, uh, and we've heard about Rivian's coming out with, like, kitchens that fold out. You know, they've got this weird little storage place behind the seats that things can come out of, and one of those is an outdoor kitchen. That's actually something you can actually see, but they are talking about making a completely electric camper van, and Motor Trend just ran a feature on it. Now, the date for this thing to appear is 2025, so it's not like you're going to be able to go buy one of these now, and between now and 2025, there's a very good chance this thing will change. And it's kind of interesting looking. It honestly looks a lot like a 1970s Mercedes van, with that little kind of short trunk and a very flat front, and then it's very high off the ground, and of course there's nothing under there, being an electric vehicle. You don't have exhaust or transfer cases or anything like that. So it's going to be excellent off-road. And it is a pop-top. The roof pops up and hinges at the front, rises in the back, giving you plenty of space in there. And what more do we know about it? Well, we don't really know that much more. They're they're being kind of tight-lipped about it. So there's a lot of speculation, and they are definitely going to make it off-road capable. But what's the battery going to be like? What's the kitchen going to be like? What are, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, these things have a massive battery in them. What are they going to use to power the lights? Is it going to be a separate battery? Are you going to, like, feed off that? We don't know. We don't know any of that stuff. The earliest they expect this to be for sale is Q4 of 2025. And, you know, how how these things go, that probably means 2028 or something like that. But this is what I'm encouraging by. The estimated price is only $125,000, which sounds like a lot, but if you compare this to say a Winnebago Solus, which can cost nearly that much, it's going to be pretty favorable. And heck, maybe we're getting to the point where we can have an all electric camper van that will actually work. Uh, Right now, we don't. I know some people have turned some electric NV200s into camper vans, and I'm sure somebody has done an electric transit and turned it into a camper van. But with a range of maybe 100 miles, I don't think this is a viable platform. The Rivian could possibly be one. And if Rivian can make one of these successfully, then no, other people are going to too. So stay tuned. The future is coming, hopefully. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 133. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And if you'd like to get a hold of me, I am at jeff at 2 gocom That's two Ts, not three, not one. And as a special bonus, you're going to get two quotes this week. Until next time, remember the words of Ray Bradbury, who said life is trying things to see if they work. And also Eleanor Roosevelt who said, do one thing every day that scares you.